0: Welcome to our next Top Solar Contractors Roundtable. This one is on community solar. It's called Big Portfolios, Manageable Projects, Community Solar Design, and Installation. So these contractor roundtables that we're putting on each month, it's all in celebration of the 10th anniversary of the Top Solar Contractors List. The 2021 application is on our website, solarpowerworldonline.com, and the deadline to apply is this Friday, May 28th, So please get those applications in if you're still thinking about applying. So today we're talking about the ins and outs of community solar. It's one of the fastest growing solar segments and comes with some unique challenges that I'm excited to dive into today with our panelists. So with us today, we have Sean Laughlin, who is head of US strategic development at Standard Solar, which is based in Maryland. We have Chris Perrone, who is VP of EPC at Nexamp, which is based in Massachusetts. And Garrett Peterson, who is VP of Project Development at Pivot Energy, which is based in Colorado. So I thought we'd start off by just kind of getting to know what each company is doing within community solar. So maybe, Sean, you could start us off. What is Standard Solar's experience in community solar?
1: Um, Sure, I'd be glad to. Really nice to to be here. Thank you, and hello, everyone. Um, So uh, Standard Solar started off like a lot of solar companies did. Uh, They're a little bit older than many solar companies, 15 or 16 years old now I think at this point. Um, I've been with them about uh, seven years myself, just a little bit over. Um, And we started off like many solar companies did, right? We were self-developing EPC. Um, We, in the old, old days, did a little resi. We did a little commercial, a little small commercial, um, built some bigger and bigger projects. Um, But we're really focused in our center of gravity, which was the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S. So, Maryland-ish, uh, but mid-Atlantic in general. Did some stuff in Delaware and um, a little bit in the in the surrounding areas. Um, as we began to grow and got much larger uh, about three and a half four years ago, uh, it was pretty obvious we were going to need to take a different position in the industry to survive. Just the the solar coaster in general, um, and so through a. A fortunate series of events, we were acquired by a large Canadian gas utility, um, who now goes by the name of Energier out of Montreal. Um, So they are our parent company. Um, So Standard Solar resides in that company, uh, as well as our our onboard um, uh, O&M company called Vigilant Management. Um, So, that's basically our background. As we got larger, our our business model changed from primarily being self-developing EPCs uh, to being acquirers of projects and financiers. So, we we finally had some real money under our belt, and we wanted to build a a solid balance sheet and a solid company, um, and that coincided really with the emergence of, uh, of community solar. Um, so, over the period of the last three and a half years or so, um, we have uh, financed and continue to own and operate literally hundreds of megawatts of community solar, as well as uh, other standalone projects, municipal projects, and all over the country. Um, a lot of that in New York, and and some of it in the other primary markets, as you would expect. Colorado, obviously, Maryland, uh, Illinois, Minnesota. Uh, the the primary emerging markets, and now uh, we're focused on the continuing to emerge markets. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, that's our position. So basically, we bring the money. We love community solar, and we love portfolios of uh, community solar. So that's what we do for a living.
0: Okay, gotcha. Chris, how about you? What can you tell me about Nextamp's involvement with community solar?
2: Yeah, th- thank you uh, for having me. Uh, my name is Chris Perrin. I'm uh, the Senior Vice President of VPC at NEXAMP, which is Engineering and Procurement for constru- in Construction. Uh, I've been with the company for 11 years. Um, previous life, active duty Army officer and worked in a variety of management roles at Home Depot Corporate in the field. Uh, NEXAMP, uh, we're a fully integrated clean energy company based in Massachusetts. Um, we were founded in 2007 by two US Army veterans. Uh, Our company manages a complete project lifecycle of solar and energy storage assets, uh, from design and construction to uh, customer acquisition and management, as well as O&M. Over the years, we've been proud to build a national portfolio of over uh, 100 operational assets, uh, totaling well over 300 megawatts. Uh, For O&M, we manage our fleet and an additional 166 megawatts of third-party assets. Specifically in regards to CS, um, currently, uh, we we do that in-house, and uh, we have over 35,000 customers in seven states today.
0: Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I know Nextamp has been involved with Community Solar since, like, the very beginning, so excited to talk with you a little more about that. Garrett, what can you tell me about Pivot Energy and and what you're doing with Community Solar? Yeah.
3: Thanks, Kelly. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Garrett Peterson. I'm the VP of Project Development for Pivot Energy. We are a um, community solar and CNI developer, a subscriber, aggregator, and manager, uh, an EPC, as well as a uh, full wrap developer in the community solar space. So uh, we wear a lot of hats, but um, really focus on the core development of community solar and the management of subscribers. Uh, we're based in Denver. We've been operational 10 plus years Our um, company Sun Central manages over 200 megawatts of community solar subscribers across about a dozen different states. And then we are um, active in community solar development in more than that, probably 20 states. We're the largest community solar developer in Colorado. And um, personally, I've been involved in community solar development since 2015. And have worked on over 400 megawatts of community projects across the u.s
0: awesome okay a lot of experience here with us today i want to talk about how community solar projects maybe differ from the traditional commercial project if at all sean since you've kind of have a little bit more recent experience of switching over or at least getting involved with community solar how, how do you approach the community solar market is it different than starting a just a plain commercial project
1: yeah i'm going to sound like a lawyer but uh, my first answer okay. is it depends um, <laughs> and it does depend so from the perspective of a finance here um, it, it is quite a bit different um, and i'll you know obviously there are others here that can speak to the differences in the development of these types of projects but for us um you know i guess first you need to decide you know sort of define what what is a commercial solar project you know it's an average cni project so for the purposes of how we look at things you know we we work on very little below about 500 kilowatts and we work on very little above about 25 megawatts um so if you're talking about you know sort of the standard we're all familiar with the standard commercial or industrial or municipal project You've got a PPA, you've got a single off taker, you evaluate their credit, hopefully they've got good muni bonds or they've got investment grade credit uh, or very close to it, or can bring a parent guarantee. Uh, once you have that locked down, it's really a matter of finding a place where you're gonna build this, usually on uh, facilities that they own, either a rooftop or a land, um, and uh, you negotiate and execute a PPA Uh, You get somebody to build it, you start generating energy, and you send them a bill for a pre-negotiated rate for for the energy. Community solar hold different kettle of fish. So, uh, you know, it's very much uh, sort of riding a a bicycle while you build it in a race. Um, So what you're really doing is, number one, um, you're trying to adhere to whatever particular program, guideline, might be in place for that particular project, and they vary a lot uh, from state to state to state. So New York is very different than Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Different utilities approach it in different ways. Uh, Some states are more supportive than others. Um, And that uh, blends on down to something we're gonna talk about, I think, in greater detail in just a little bit, which is the particular mix of subscribers. Um, some of these programs allow for you to have a good deal of choice on your subscriber mix. Uh, if you're somebody like me that's bringing the money, you'd just as soon have the fewest, highest credit subscriber, you know, you know anchor tenants as you can. Um, however, uh, in many of these programs, you have to have multiple tenants, including low, medium income, um, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of tenants in various sizes of projects. Um, And you've got to negotiate some type of contract with every single one of them, uh, and you've got to deal with that credit rating. So, um, you know, by the time we get involved, we're looking very closely at uh, where things fall uh, credit-wise, what the anchor tenants look like, um, what the rates and discounts look like. Um, And then ultimately, uh, since we bring the full capital stack, we care not only about uh, the expense side of the equation. We want to bring the cash to build it. Uh, and finance it, but we also want to monetize the tax equity on the backside. Uh, So that's another complicated equation from a financing standpoint uh, that we get involved in as well. So um, from 100,000 feet, those are the main differences.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Great explanation. (laughs) Um, Chris, I'm hoping you could speak a little bit about how site selection works for these projects, like how are farmers giving up some of their land because they want to do a project, are municipalities wanting to do community solar? What is site selection like?
2: Uh, CS CS is a component of site selection like any other project we do. So we kind of look at projects from a singular lens and then add a CS component to it. What I mean by that is typically the land attributes and the interconnection complexity uh, tends to be the main driving components, but then the next factor when you add CS to the mix is the demographics of the surrounding areas, a little bit what Sean's talking about. Depending on the mix, you want to ho- you hopefully the d- demographics support that type of mix. Um, ultimately, you know, we aim to deliver on the promise of community solar as it is defined You know, and that means working with and through the communities where our projects are sited. Um, And ideally, our participating subscriber mix will reflect the communities that we serve, and we're working hard to ensure that these benefits are known and available to all the ratepayers. So that's really the key component, is that demographic component of site selection.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Gotcha. Okay. And going back uh, to the farmers, with respect to the farmers, they are interested in renting their land. Um, (laughs) The desire to earn reliable income from underproductive land is desirable in these competitive times, Uh, and to do so in a way that benefits our neighbors as well is a compelling bonus. So farmland areas of this country, uh, they're very open-minded to this type of solution.
0: Awesome. Okay. Uh, Garrett, you said Pivot Energy obviously handles um, subscribers and and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about customer acquisition? Are there any software innovations that are kind of helping you out there? Where could that – what needs to be improved?
3: Yeah, Um, I think the biggest innovation we've seen across the subscriber aggregation um, process is digitalizing the enrollment you know our our platform Sun Central in which we manage customer acquisition and billing through has shifted to purely digital primarily because of the the process that community solar enrollment used to be Um, I'm sure you know Chris and Sean remember this but five six years ago it was literally like knocking on doors somebody at Home Depot Um, subscribing customers. There was a a contract that was, you know, 30 pages long. And what we really had to do as an industry is, is evolve into something that reflected more how standard consumer goods and services are sold right now. Like you can sign up for a cell phone online. You can order anything from Amazon or, or wherever else. And I think that's that's the way this this industry has evolved. And we're making the process easier to to have subscribers come on board, also making it a little bit easier to uh, transfer a contract. If they end, you can have a digital wait list of, of people waiting to get into gardens. And so that's really been the process there. Um, I think there are also some additional innovations in the sense of single customer billing or utility consolidated billing. Right now it's only available in New York, but this, is, this will be something that as uh, the industry has to, has to deal with going forward, it's proposed in Massachusetts, Illinois, Virginia. Um, it, it, it will make it a lot easier because of that single bill and the, the customer experience. But it's also going to create an issue where companies like Pivot, NexAmp Standard kind of lose their brand recognition and the touch with the customer throughout the course of their subscription cycle. So mm-hmm. there, there are definitely innovations coming. I, I see a lot more happening uh, with the way just people are are buying their energy as as a whole going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I have a question for you, Garrett, specifically about Colorado. I do notice that the community solar projects there, they are called gardens. Is that just a fun word or is there a distinction between a garden and and a different project?
3: So I think that really comes out of uh, the program in Colorado. You know, Colorado was one of the, the really the first states and it it was meant to mimic a community garden where you had a, a smaller piece of property, say with a lot of um, people in the area that came and worked on it. But in Colorado, we do have county adjacency rules for subscribers, so it does make it feel slightly more community garden than like New York where you just have to be in the same load zone. Mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So
3: I think I think that's where it comes from.
0: I I just thought it was maybe a hoity-toity way to say community solar, but I, I like it either way. <laughs> um, Sean, how how do you determine whether to allow like a few large off-takers or many individual off-takers on your project, Sean, with standard solar?
1: Yeah, well, um, a lot of times that's predetermined. Uh, So a specific program might say you've got to have a minimum of 10% or 20% uh, low-medium income. Um, You can only have so many anchor tenants. Um, No large anchor tenant can occupy more than X percent, depending on what state you're in, 20, 30, 40% uh, of the entire community solar garden. Um, you know, so a lot of times the programs predetermine that. Um, in other instances, there is some flexibility um, where you have sort of a range of things you can choose from. Sometimes that impacts the, uh, the financial model as well. Um, so you can sort of charge maybe, you know, perhaps different rates for different mixes of subscribers, or there might be an advantage um in terms of, of the the rate uh, you can charge based on your compliance with making this more available um, you know to people that normally wouldn't have it available to them so you know part of, of my world um, is sort of running that balance. I've been a solar guy for a long time now 16 or 17 years I guess um, and, and I run that balance. I wrote an article uh, last year a year and a half ago uh, on actually fulfilling the promise uh, of solar through community solar. Um, and that's important to me, but when we get it, so I run sort of both sides of the fence, right? So on one side, I'm in a room full of guys with really shiny shoes. They're bankers and lawyers and tax equity people. Um, and they want the fewest uh, you know, possible subscribers with the highest possible credit and the lowest possible risk. Um, but a lot of us that have been around solar a long time really do care about fulfilling that promise that Garrett is talking about, um, and that's critical to us. So we strike that balance and, uh, we comply with programs to the ability, you know, to the best of our ability, of course. And then we work very closely with developers themselves uh, about what they need to see in their community and in their programs for them to be successful, so I, I think that's the broadest Way to approach it. I think it's probably the right way to approach. It.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Along those same lines, you brought up like there might be requirements that certain um, portions of a project have to be, you know, fulfilled by low income um, residents. Garrett, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. How do you encourage um, low income participation in these projects? It kind of seems like it's becoming more. I don't want to say trend, but it's becoming more important to kind of get more people involved with community solar that obviously maybe couldn't, couldn't do it themselves.
3: Of course it's a, it's a fine line between I think a a trend, a, um, a requirement and then almost a necessity, right? So there are certain States that obviously have low income requirements, New Jersey, it's planned for Virginia. And then you look at, um, maybe something like New York that is planning an LMI program and an additional incentive for that. And then another state like Colorado where it is a somewhat quantitative and qualitative RFP. And so having community benefit to LMI and nonprofit subscribers is a necessity of of securing those megawatts within that RFP. So that all boils down to the development process and really being involved on a, a grassroots community level. You know, we work with a couple national nonprofits that have a lot of local chapters. We also work with um, local housing authorities and the um, the towns themselves where we are siting projects to make it more of a, a community benefit. You know, you have taxes, you're providing um, additional revenue or at least a, a discount to electric rates for Some of the the LMI people within the the town, so it's it's really a part of the development process, and and what can you involve there to help your project move forward? But then you have to do you do have to consider things on the back end, like Sean was talking about with underwriting and things like that that truly play into the financing of it. Where states are states are putting out some uh, a fairly high bar. To LMI subscription, you know, New Jersey, this this last procurement, every project guaranteed to be, I believe, 50% subscribed by LMI customers. So community solar finance has come a long way, but how do you get, as Sean said, the guys with the shiny shoes comfortable with uh, underwriting a, a 25-year contract on, say, a housing authority or a, a local nonprofit? And so it's a, it's a delicate balance there. With With all of that, and um, it's a challenging it's challenging from a, a customer management perspective because the records that you have to keep in the subscription process is is more onerous for LMI. And uh, a lot of people don't see that behind the scenes, but that's driven by the requirement of either the utility or the state to show that they actually are LMI qualified. And so subscriber aggregators like our ourself or or Nexamp actually has to keep all those records and it, it adds additional cost to the whole project. So you know it's 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 a fairly nuanced process of the actual participation, the record keeping, the resubscription and then the finance of those those projects.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um we talked earlier about how financing is obviously way different for community solar projects compared to just standard commercial projects, but I'm wondering, is O&M different for community solar versus commercial solar? Chris, maybe you can you can talk about that. I mainly just want to give you an opportunity to talk about sheep and all the fun stuff that you guys have going on in O&M, but <laughs> what, what's, what are some trends with community solar O&M?
2: Um, I think in general, um, you know, the the approach is really no different uh, because you know our company we own our own assets, so generally O and M is about being proactive. We don't wait for a problem to occur. We try to get out in front of it. We do proactive maintenance on the equipment. We don't wait till something breaks. Yes, we use sheep as a methodology for vegetative maintenance, uh, really to push a sustainable practices we follow. But solar O&M in the CS world is more than that. Um, As an IPP, we strive to execute all the regular maintenance. Like I said, we have an energy center um, that maintains constant vigilance on all our sites from Boston, wherever they are in the country. Um, But the number one way to keep CS customers happy is to keep the systems running so they get the credits that they are expecting. And most CS customers, believe it or not, are fairly sophisticated. They're looking at their bills and they want to see the credit. And uh, they will let you know <laughs> if you're not producing. So, um, you know, from solar o and I think it's a generalized approach, proactive maintenance.
0: Yeah, you have a a, a lot more eyes watching you, I guess, with those projects <laughs> to make sure that they're still running.
2: <laughs> that is <a> true.
0: <laughs> um, I want to talk about energy storage and maybe how that's starting to come into community solar projects. Sean, are you seeing some demand for hybrid projects and and how would storage work from a subscriber standpoint?
1: That's a really good question. Um, And before I answer it, I would just say from personal experience, sheep are better than goats. (laughs) I'm I'm just saying. Like answer jump that question. Offline, they do. They'll climb all up on there. It's crazy. Um, okay, so demand is an interesting a uh, term to use here. Um, in, in, in my view, and I think in, in most of our views, in, in order for demand to exist for, for storage, um, for hybrid community solar projects, that really has to emanate from the utility um, uh, because, you know, in order to – Sort of uh, amortize that over multiple subscribers. That benefit, that credit, that demand reduction, peak shaving—you know—all the normal applications for storage are going to have to run through the utility on some level. So I would say demand, um, you know, is uh, is bleeding edge, and it's it's probably down the road a little bit. Interest, however, emanates from people. Um, and from applications and from you know people that want to solve problems, and I would say there 's a huge amount of interest, um, just as there is in storage in general. Uh, energy storage has been somewhat slow to get off the ground unless there have been um, you know areas and environments where there is enormous benefit, extremely high fuel costs or existing incentives that have it make sense, and a grid uh, that will support um, you know, um, a higher degree of flexibility of of input and offtake uh, from the grid itself. So Hawaii, um, there's incentives in California, uh, but California hasn't really crossed the threshold to offering community solar for real yet. They have something called CCAs, uh, but they really don't have community solar programs as we know them in the rest of the country, and many states have nothing so far for, uh, that support community solar. But many and and more every day do, and there's many emerging markets. But energy, storage, um, batteries in conjunction with the system, uh, possible, yes. Um, Feasible, yes. Uh, Practical, maybe sometimes in in unusual circumstances. uh, Universally applicable, not quite yet, in my view.
0: Gotcha. Chris, Garrett, do you have anything to add? Have you been seeing any demand for hybrid projects?
2: Uh, For Nextamp, we do do the hybrid projects. Uh, We do do CS uh, customers on that. But it's not a a desire where someone says, I want to be on a storage project. It's more of just a function of the natural evolution of the development that we do. Interestingly enough, though, I do see with the CS customers, they do want to know the types of products that we're using to build our projects. Um, They do go on the Internet and they do look at who's hot, who's not. And uh, so that's one of the interesting pieces on the sales cycle um, where you get a fair amount of customers that are fairly sophisticated when it comes to that.
0: Interesting.
3: yeah we're um, we're seeing well, storage I... I, I was just gonna add we're, yeah, go we're seeing storage as as Sean mentioned but it's it's really in certain markets where there's either uh, fairly high demand charges or peak peak hour charges and it's really market driven I think there's a lot of customers out there that hear storage and say oh I want it and then when you actually show a price, there really has to be a value add for that storage. Otherwise, the cost is prohibitive. <clears throat>
0: mm-hmm. OK, yeah, great insight, guys. Thank you. All right, we have. we we're going to wrap up our portion. Audience members, you are welcome to submit some questions in the Q&A box on your screen. Um, I see some have already come through. We will get to those, but I want to talk now about policy. Um, How? Since you guys are all working in all different states, you're not just kind of focused on one area, how do varying state policies affect community solar business? Maybe Garrett, if you'd like to start us off.
3: Sure. State policy is a huge driver Of the community solar business, Um, we can't participate in the wholesale markets on the size that we're building at, you know, two to five megawatts. So some form of enabling legislation is necessary. And if you watch emerging community solar markets and how companies move from one to the next, you know, it it just shows how how truly dependent we are on um, on state legislation. I think. What we're really trying to get to is these markets that are sustainable from a standpoint of either a standard procurement amount, a, a program that is, is manageable, provides incentives or credits that allows for continued development, but isn't the, the boom and bust cycles of say Illinois, for example, that was a 200 megawatt procurement and then we might not see another one for three to four years as compared to Minnesota or New York that has just had ongoing development opportunity and, and continued um, continued action in the state.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, what insight do you have?
2: Um, I'm gonna echo what Garrett said. Uh, policies really are critical for us. Uh, they drive areas we go, and they, really, they drive system design uh, as well. Um, it defines what our CS offtake makeup is going to look like. It pushes us on how and when we're going to deploy mm-hmm. our systems. Um, the policies really – you have to have a deep understanding of them to really take advantage and create opportunities within that construct.
0: <clears throat> okay. Sean, what do, what do you think about policy and maybe where where are you looking ahead to? What are the emerg- emerging markets?
1: Um, Yeah, really, really, really good question. Uh, So we are, you know, on one hand, um, trying to become, you know, very uh, intelligent about and responsible about where we pursue, you know, particular markets. Uh, to a great extent we're extremely dependent on the development you know the, de- the developers themselves um you know to find and pursue those markets but we need to be ahead of that not only in terms of the relationship but you know in terms of planning for the market because the policies to uh, you know basically drive the structure of the financing and the program um, so at some point all those pieces have to come together for us Um, So there are some markets, uh, just like any state, that might pass a a renewable portfolio standard and opens up for renewable energy in general, solar in general. Um, You know, there's always a big boom, so there's a boom there. Uh, You open up for community solar and there's a big boom. Uh, Almost always the, the state is not prepared to handle the size of that boom, the PUC, the regulatory agencies, the utilities, et cetera um you know and they get good at it over a period of time so you see states like new york come and go uh you know big huge boom and then pull back a little bit and redo the program you know come back out um so we're we're watching new york's reemergence. we're watching new jersey very carefully right now um uh what's new and hot a little bit in the in the mountain west sorry large (laughs) dog Um uh New Mexico we're watching very carefully, a little bit in Arizona, uh, and the redo of uh you know several other markets that are beginning to emerge. And uh, it looks like Maryland is getting uh a little more solid, although there's been a community solar there for a while.
0: Okay. Thank you guys for all of the really great answers. Um we're gonna I'm gonna look through some of these questions and maybe toss them to a few of you guys. Um there's one I'm gonna kind of rephrase what they're saying, but um, solar EPCs who are maybe primarily just working on um, stuff for homeowners or small commercial, um, how would they get involved with community solar? Um, What, how easy is it to kind of enter into that new market? Does anybody kind of have any advice?
3: I, I would say that the transition, if you if you want to call it that, from a, a residential to a small commercial, EPC to community solar, on on a smaller level it is not that hard. There there are a lot of states that have community solar projects that are under 250 kW. You know, if you're if you're building a 50 to 100 kW commercial project, you know, stepping up in that size is not a not a challenge and you can start to fill that niche of rooftop or small ground-mount community solar that's essentially a CNI project. Um, I also think the other avenue to become involved in this is being a subcontractor to a larger EPC and filling a niche that you're very good at. Maybe it's the AC side of the project and getting involved from that standpoint, understand the interconnection schemes of community solar versus behind the meter, and take that smaller step under one scope of the project rather than trying to take on an entire project. So Mm -hmm. I I would say those are two ways that an EPC that's smaller could get into community solar.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Uh, We have another question. Maybe, Sean, you could maybe talk a little bit about this. How do you streamline underwriting, permitting, construction, all of those processes for so many solar projects at once when you're working on all of these community solar projects?
3: You
1: hire a lot of lawyers and a lot of bankers. (laughs) Um, I mean, and and that's kind of the answer. I mean, you know, that's sort of the holy grail, and it has been, especially in project finance for several years now. Um, You know, is that that whole concept everybody wants to rinse and repeat, you hear that all the time. But we developed this process and we just do it over and over and over again. Uh, But the reality is there's enough uniqueness, especially as you move between states uh, and regulatory programs, um, so that you really do have to have a plan uh, for almost every project. So, you know, how how do you really streamline it? uh, you do it with relationships. Um, you know, you find people you can trust, and you stay out of their way, and you let them do what they do really, really well. Uh, which is kind of my, uh, you know, my homegrown uh, business philosophy in general and and uh, management philosophy. So, you know, I think that that really is the answer. It's hard to do it. It's difficult. Um, it's easier to do it uh, locally or regionally or in a state. Than it is to do it um you know nationally uh, or in big regions you know like quarters of the country or something um so you find good partners and and you work well with them and you understand that you're not always going to uh not always going to get everything that you want
0: gotcha uh chris maybe you could help me with this question um What do you think is the future of community solar in states that are maybe not attaching incentives to things? Like I know like in Illinois, uh, the community solar projects have already met that cap. Like they're not being incentivized to build anymore. New York is kind of faced with the same thing. Is community solar just dead in those states? Or what do you think?
2: Um, So we've been kind of – We've been on the ground floor in virtually all the new CS markets as they've, as, they, as they've opened up. And a lot of what Garrett and Sean have said as I've listened to them really has resonated with me. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is is that each state has its own unique flavor to it. And some are clearly better than others. So what we have done since we've had a lot of inroads into multiple states is We're pretty active on the policy side to help the states craft policy that makes sense. Uh, I think some of uh, the the panelists here can attest to some initial rollouts of CS programs have come out with great intentions, but the regulatory framework to actually get the customer makes it so onerous that the the program's never gotten off the ground. So early entry uh, to help craft policy in these states is critical. I mean, I think about um, you know what we try to get through to the policymakers to keep these programs going, even if they seem like they might be teetering. Uh, Illinois was brought up a little bit earlier is the key is to make sure community solar is approachable. it has to be easy to understand from a consumer perspective um, and the best markets do that through a bill credit methodology that's simple to calculate. Um, the utilities are transparent about the information they share and with customers and the community solar providers alike. Um, you know, I think about markets that we're looking at. Um, you know, uh, Sean had mentioned some markets. Uh, you know, we we are very interested in the Virginia and Mexico market. I, I think Sean mentioned that Mexico Uh, We're very excited about Pennsylvania. And you look at the history, which is nothing new in the community solar world where we have operating projects today, Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, Maryland, Maine, Minnesota, New Jersey. You've heard some of the states said on this panel, these are progressive states that have a community solar program that can work. So when you're trying to find projects, going back to that site origination, you wanna get into community solar. You have to understand what has the progressive policies that give you some runway uh, to do these projects
0: mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay uh, this this last question we have um, they're asking, how do you expect competition among the aggregate aggregators' changes in the future? Do you expect more discount to retail price in the future how i don't know if any of you can comment um, how are utilities kind of interacting with these community solar arrays do you think that they're uh how how is retail price of electricity kind of affected by by these projects
3: yeah so the the retail side of it is an interesting it's an interesting study because if you look at what's happened in new york to Veter rates over the course of the last basically of covid feeder rates dropped, capacity values dropped, and the discount that you could offer there is slightly less than it was prior, right? I, th- I think there's gonna be more competition from utilities looking at, if you wanna categorize them as like green tariff programs, green power programs, where they are effectively offering some form of community solar, but it's through a utility scale PPA in which they're just allocating bill credits or um, kilowatt hours to a, an existing customer, right? I, I think there's going to be a larger push. And so I don't see as much competition from aggregators or community solar providers. You know, we're, we're kind of, we have to work within the confines of the program, whether that's five megawatts, what the credits look like, what we can build at the competition is going to come from the utilities that say well i think we can do this on a much larger scale make up the difference between our utility ppa and a customer's retail rate still provide green energy that's that's where we're really going to run into challenges and i think the hard part of that is the you know the utilities not recognizing the value of distributed resources that community solar providers are bringing whether that's upgrading substations, utility infrastructure, uh, locational resource value, things like that. that, that is being lost in the whole process. And we, as Chris mentioned, we, we really have to focus on legislation that gets us the, the right value for these smaller projects. But keep in mind that utilities will be basically creating their own programs.
0: Right, right. OK. Well, I want to thank Sean, Chris, and Garrett, and Standard Solar, Nexamp, and Pivot Energy for, for joining me today to talk a little bit about community solar. Thank you so much to the audience for sending in some questions. I think we, we got a lot of really great insight into this emerging market. So please uh, join us for our next and final roundtable, which will be next month in June. We're going to talk about utility scale solar trends. And for all of these solar installers watching today, deadline to apply to top solar contractors list is this Friday. (laughs) So please get your applications in. So thank you so much for watching and have a great day. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Kelly.
2: Thank you.